Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. Our goal is to get to the root issues of systemic problems using a theological and psychological lens. We hope you enjoy. Putman Restoration is a proud sponsor of the Asking Why podcast. Putman Restoration specializes in commercial disaster services, including water damage, fire, smoke, mold, and storm. Their goal and desire is to get your properties up and running as soon as possible after disaster strikes. Hospitals, schools, hotels, and large municipal buildings, malls, churches, and large commercial properties are their specialty. Manage properties nationwide? No problem. Putman Restoration Services, their clients nationwide. They are strategically partnered with elite restoration companies throughout the U.S. and Canada, giving their clients resources during disasters where normal companies would be tapped out. Trust the professionals at Putman Restoration when disaster strikes. Visit them online at www.putmanrestoration.com or give them a call at 318-453-5029. Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis, and we have today Miss Chelsea Harrington. She is a parent and family uh, life coach, and I, I saw her on Instagram. We messaged back and forth a little bit. She was posting some awesome stuff and things about what she does in her field and area, and so we kind of messaged back and forth, and and you know, you guys know I like to just have people on here to talk about some of the hard topics that I think we're all wrestling with and juggling with uh, and trying to figure out how do we parent, how do we live in this, in this world that we live in in 2023 with all the trauma and all the education and all the buzzwords that are floating around, but also with the long history of kind of, um, beliefs and, and, you know, good and bad roots of parenting. And so anyway, I just want her to come on and, and talk about this stuff. So Chelsea, welcome to the podcast and welcome to the, the team and, and let's get to have a good conversation going. Tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do. Hi, thank you, Clint. I'm so excited to be here. Um, likewise, I love love what you do. Um, love your work. Love love that I connected with you on social media. Um, as you said, I'm, my name is Chelsea Harrington. I am a parent and family coach. Um, I have a pediatric, pediatric occupational therapy uh, background. I worked as a pediatric occupational therapy assistant for uh, several years. Um, had my son, my one and only child five years ago, um, all of these, you know, <laughs> working in occupational therapy, having my own child, um, suffering through some postpartum depression stuff, mm. um, starting therapy, uh, healing a lot of childhood stuff that came up really early on from when he was a baby. Um, and then just my parenting journey, I felt really called to share with other parents my journey and being transparent and uh, took some courses. Um, I took Dr. Sears. He's a, a beloved pediatrician. Um, may, he's written a lot of books. Um, I took his uh, health coaching course. Um, and so that and then at the merriment of some parent coaching classes and courses that I've taken. And then my, of course, my occupational therapy background is kind of all coming together to, uh, uh, be a coach and yeah. to help families with things. So <laughs> that's awesome. And you live where? Yeah. Arkansas, that's central right. Arkansas. All right. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so yeah. what, so really it was, ha what did you do? So you were OT before then you had a baby. Mm -hmm. OTA. And was, okay. And that was five years ago. You said, um, well, my son was born five years ago. Yeah. I had been doing OT before that. So, and then during, but then the pandemic hit. Um, so I was home with him 
and I haven't done traditional OT in about three years. Gotcha. Um, so I've been in the coaching space. Yeah. It's interesting how having kids, right, <clears throat> brings up all of our own stuff that maybe we didn't know we had or we never really got to deal with. And then we start trying to parent and love this little baby. And man, the countertransference and the stuff that it brings up in us is a lot. It hit me like a train. I mean, I, you know, all the things that we are conditioned to believe that motherhood is supposed to be like, I had the opposite experience. Mm. I mean, I was dealing with the mental health issues of just having depression, postpartum depression, but then I was, uh, dealing with like he would cry and just I would be I would become so reactive and mm -hmm. there was all these things that happened those first couple of years my depression lasted about three years um but through therapy I was able to um heal a lot of that but it took me by surprise because mm -hmm. I didn't understand what was happening in my body and of course now I know that there was probably some things that happened when I was a baby I had colic my parents were young I was the first uh, child that they had had. <laughs> and, um, I just, you know, and I, I saw everybody else was just like, it seemed like I was the only one that was dealing with this. Yeah. You know, it's like, why is everybody, why is it so easy for somebody to take their baby and go to the store? I mean, I don't think I left the house with him without support for like two years. Cause I was just so anxious and scared to do anything. And I realized it wasn't normal, you know? And so I got help. Um, but yeah, but and it's your reality, beyond. too, at the same time. You yeah. Know, I think that's the yeah. other thing is, like, trying to strike a balance. Uh, yeah, that's a big conversation. Uh, we all have, you know, I have kids with some allergies and sensory issues and special needs. And when we were going through the same thing, yes, uh, from an outsider's perspective, and even at my best self, could we have managed that better, right? H had I been prepared and had skills and been more resilient and, and had support and understood what was going on, of course, quote unquote, I could have managed it better. But that's not how life happens, right? You get a baby, then you realize there's problems, then you, you're back feeling all the things you don't know. And so hindsight, you could say, oh, well, I could have been more calm. Some things weren't as big of a deal as they yeah, made them to be, quote unquote, or whatever. But there's no way to know that and have done that in the moment. And so it's real easy to look at another person and say, well, why do they do that? Or why are they freaking out? Or why are they overwhelmed? Or why don't they just take their baby to the park or stay up late or whatever the thing is that we kind of criticize other parents for? And it's yeah. like, well, it's not that simple. So I think, uh, right. I think for anybody in American culture, especially as individualized as we are. And as man, I'm not going to speak to your parents, but you know, when, when we come from families that didn't know how to do that, that didn't have the resources or tools, then we don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And then we're exactly. parenting in a world that is new that our parent that didn't exist when our parents were parenting us. And there's all these new things. There's sensory disorders and autism and Asperger's and food allergies and, you know, colic that are, yes, quote unquote, they've always existed, but not at the rate and level that we experience it now. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, exactly. it's wild. Yeah. And I think one of the things to speak to that, that I really started it, it, for me, you know, this journey to becoming a coach, I just started kind of connecting dots on hmm, like, you know, I was doing traditional therapy, outpatient clinics, and I was going into schools. Um, but I never learned, you know, we talk about teaching kids how to self-regulate. Mm -hmm. I would have self-regulation goals for children. And I realized I don't know how to regulate myself. <laughs> Amen. Why are we not training 
therapists, teachers, ourselves to, and so that really with my journey with therapy, I have a really, really wonderful therapist. Um, and she has like, you know, like 40 years of experience or something crazy like that. And uh, we just went back to the basics with me on, um, emotional regulation. And I learned that so much of what our struggles are that we perceive when our kids are upset, even when you take it back to an infant crying is we have so much power to co-regulate with them, but we have to be able to have those skills Mm -hmm. uh, to do that. And so I started, that's when I started like being like, huh, like there's some missing pieces here, you know, kind of when you look at like traditional medical like stuff, right. It's like, we're not really getting in, the root. We're not getting to the root. And I, I became so passionate through my experience, my journey with therapy to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Most of the kids that were seeing, you know, way back in the day, pediatric OTs had a large, you know, their caseload was made up of children with physical disabilities, right? Cerebral palsy, Down syndrome. Fast forward to t- the 2000s, most of the children on my caseload had neurodiversity, like ADHD, mm-hmm. autism, oppositional defiance disorder, which we can argue if that's if that's even a thing. Yeah. Um, and so I'm a I figured out figured out I'm a sensitive being, and I'm a root cause kind of gal. Like I'm like, wait a second, why aren't we talking to the parents about how much these children are sleeping? How how what are they? What's their nutrition like? Um, what is the parenting style? Because the parenting style can cause, <laughs> you know, oppositional defiance to start. A child can become oppositional if a child, if a parent, not to blame the parent, but just if the parents don't have the tools. It's never about blaming the parent, but it's about what are we addressing here? Yeah. So, well, that's an interesting, uh, it, sorry, the, the blame thing yeah. is an interesting thing that I think comes with self-awareness and self-regulation, right? Is that, Somebody can say, and this is a huge cultural problem. I mean, we're getting into like cancel culture and all the things you, you can say to someone. Um, and this, I think this is a problem that within the Christian world, we have this kind of, you know, only God can judge me. You know, Tupac says this and the Christians say this, you know, and so it's a weird, interesting (laughs) dynamic, but I think that the problem with judgment is when you think judgment means I think less of your worth and value, Mm. right? So if I'm telling a parent, you didn't do this right they hear, or you didn't do this in the best possible way, right? Which is a better way to say it. You didn't do this in the best possible way. It doesn't matter if you didn't have the resources and tools or if you just chose to do the wrong thing. To me, your worth and value doesn't change. You're still a worthy human. You're still doing the best you can with what you know. You still deserve reconciliation and and healing and and to learn to do better and to do better. We have a culture, though, that hears, hey, you could have done this better as you're bad, you're terrible, Mm -hmm. you're an awful human being. And so I think on both ends, from a Christian perspective, we as as Christ followers have have done a bad job of that, of of measuring people's behaviors and saying, well, you do these behaviors, so you're bad, which is literally the opposite of our ultimate teaching, which is God loves you unconditionally, not because of your behaviors, but because of who he says you are, which isn't based Mm -hmm. on your behaviors. And so it's just this crazy, it, the, mm-hmm. and then and then the secular world's doing the same thing. It's like, mm-hmm. so so we can't as coaches and, and therapists and OTs. It's really hard to to help people when any way that you point out a flaw or a discrepancy or a way to do better gets met with, you're saying I'm awful. You're calling me out. You're saying I'm a bad parent. You're blaming me. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well you slapped your kid in the face. 
right? Mm-hmm. Yes, you were traumatized. Yes, you're doing better than your parents. Yes, there was a bad day and a hard day. And we all can accept that that was a one-time thing and you didn't mean to. Mm-hmm. And also their behavior is going to be a consequence of that slap and you're responsible for it. So yeah. blame is maybe is a hard word, but in some ways we have to learn to be able to take responsibility. And, and I think parents need to learn how to take responsibility without then heaping coals on their head and feeling all this shame. Does that make sense? Right. And I think that's where I was getting frustrated. You know, with someone that has sensitivity, I, I crave honesty. Like I just need you to be your full self. I can detect an authenticity. I can detect somebody that's not authentic from a mile away. It just, Mm -hmm. I am designed to be vulnerable. Yeah. Uh And, we, we in these traditional settings, we're worried about hurting parents' feelings or, oh, that's outside of our scope. And it's not. It's not outside. In fact, I think, you know, there are a lot of OTs that have gone on to add parent coaching to their, um, you know, expertise. And because there is such a need. Um, but it is. It's a fine line between. And, th- and that's the thing is, that's why I say I am a parent coach for conscious caregivers, because mm-hmm. you have to get out of that rigid state to be able to have the open mind to have compassion for yourself, to understand that these things happen or you're parenting in a way that you're not super happy with, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not your fault. And you can have compassion for yourself, but you also have to have that growth mindset and you can't, you know, can't be rigid still, like you were talking about of like this rigid, this rigidity, you know, um, and that, that prevents us from having curiosity about things that are different than what we had originally believed. That's why spanking and physical punishment of kids is still such a big thing in the South, mm-hmm. um, is because there is this very rigid mindset that goes against all the latest research. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, and just human nature. I mean, y- you don't make somebody feel bad to for them to feel better. It just makes them feel worse, you mm-hmm. know. And um, but I do think that's why that mindset issue is, you know, really uh, steep still here in the South. Absolutely, um, and you. I've tried to be really con- uh, mindful of that when I'm uh, coaching parents, but they do have to kind of be in that next step to for us to work together. Because um, I'm not interested in getting in an argument about you know timeouts and um, physically punishing kids. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's kind of like you got to be ready to put that behind you. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I hear what you're saying. I think I've gotten this way in life in general as a therapist where, you know, I love my, I mean, obviously there's nuance to it, but if you're just radically opposed to a certain technique or way of doing things or therapy in general, it's not my job to talk you into it. You know, mm-hmm. and it, there are parents who are, there are plenty, there's a long list of people who want to get help and who want to change things and who, who are aware or evolved enough to go, Hey, this thing in marriage is not working. You know, my mm-hmm. pornography that I'm looking at or this thing that I'm doing is not helpful. Can you please mm-hmm. help me? I'm not interested in someone coming in and being like, well, I don't think that's that bad. It's not really that big of a deal. Let me give mm-hmm. you all the reasons why this thing's okay. And my wife or husband's just, you know, being ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. first session, I'm going to be like, you know, I'm willing to work with you a few, a few, you know, sessions. But if, if you're not on board with this, like, 
there's other people that can help you that can work with you. And I would say the same thing when it comes probably for you and any of the things that you do, it's like, yeah, there has to be an, an onboarding ramp to not spanking, not doing certain timeouts, Mm -hmm. not, you know, feeding a certain way, not having a a relationship with food. That's a certain way being willing to, um, see you as the expert, right. Mm -hmm. As uh, as Christians, I would say, see you as the pastor, see you as the leader. Like, I'm not going to tell someone, uh, I'm not going to argue with somebody theology or try to talk them into believing something if they don't see me as a person that they want to lead or, or, you know, be discipled by or with. And so that's a question you have to ask people is like, is this what you want? And if they say yes, then you're, you're both agreeing to a particular thing. Yeah. And I I can say most parents, like, I don't know very many parents as, you know, especially moms that don't want to do, you know, they want what's best for their kids. They want to do, you know, better and they want um, support. And that, and that's where you get into parents just really aren't supported in our culture, especially moms. Um, And so there's this gap, you know, where it's like, even with therapy, even with OT, um, it's like the kids, you know, the parent drops the kid off and the kid goes into the room and they do, they do, you know, we sit at a table and we do handwriting and we do this and that we may go into the gym and then we take them to the parent and then they leave. Mm -hmm. And I was like, especially when I became a parent and realized, oh my goodness, this is, uh, this is hard. Um, but also, our society makes it makes some things a lot harder than they need to be. Um, and that's one thing that I also became passionate about was like, okay, it's already hard enough <laughs> for parents and families in our society. Um, lots of hard things with modern, with modern parenting. Why are we then now putting all these extra pressures and things? So one of the things as a conscious parenting coach that I do is, help parents like listen to that intuition, preserve that intuition and say no to a lot of that extra stuff. You know, all these pressures that, uh, to get our kids to do things before they're ready. Can you give Um, a couple examples? Yeah. Like, um, everything potty, yeah, potty training, moving in, you know, (laughs) some of the big ones are uh, potty training, moving the child into the toddler bed for some reason is always really, (laughs) and I'm not, I'm not trying to, it's just, it's, it seems like it was this, it's these huge things. Um, so potty training, moving them into the toddler bed. Yeah. I'm getting them to eat their vegetables. (laughs) Uh, Keep going. Um, I know you got a list. Um, you know, uh, getting them to behave well way before they're, you know, getting them to not cry, getting them to not have meltdowns, um, making sure they know their ABCs before they go to kindergarten. Um, you know, uh, what it, I, I mean, I could probably That's go on list. and on. Those are, those are the big ones but that those I are, see. All yeah. And those are all developmental issues, right? Those are all things yeah. that parents without a, and this is the sad part, parents without a psychological degree or a master's in marriage and family therapy or a family studies degree have no access to that information. Yeah. And I think that's a major theme over the last 30 years. Well, first of all, it's pretty new information. I mean, historically, right? I mean, it it wasn't until 1958 that we even had the word parenting in the English language. That's insane. Fascinating. So like we, we were only, what is it? 
2023. You know, we're only 60 years out from even having that word in all of history. Why? Like, I, I had to go back and look it up the other day because I'm writing that section in the book, and I'm like, this is insane. So I put a graph, and it shows, like, the English language and lexicon of when the word parent and parenting came in. And it's just like, so you have that, and then you have the science that, you know, how could we study the brain and understand neurology and development and, and all these things up until the last 35 years? We just didn't have the technology to do it. And so mm -hmm. that's why I have a lot, and I know you do too, have a lot of empathy for parents on, like, this is not your fault. Like, you're not just trying to be a bad parent. We just didn't know any of these things. And, yeah. and, and our whole society was different. We didn't have the ability to be therapeutic or be comforting or take, take timeouts. Like if we didn't discipline and do what we needed to do, our kids were going to literally die. You know, if, if, <laughs> if, if, so I get why spanking was a thing for a long time. It's because yeah. like, if you don't listen and you go be a toddler, the wolf's going to eat you, you know, like you're yeah. going to get the play. You're going to get bit by a rattlesnake. Like you're going to die of heat stroke or dysentery. Like, so I have to hit you because it's life or death. Yeah. And I feel like now we're still 40 years into, well, longer than that now, you know, 70 years into, okay, now we have entertainment and comfort and medical things. And our kids are, kids are not always at risk for like the physical Maslow's hierarchy of needs, death and dying situations. Maybe we yeah. should adjust the enlightenment to the human condition and, you know, working on emotional intelligence and these sort of things. So it's like yeah. this list you give me, potty training, uh, moving to the toddler bed, eating veggies, behaving well, not crying. It's like uh, all of those were pressures I felt with our oldest from everybody. You know, let them cry it out. You'll, you know, you're suffering for no reason. Let them cry it out. Yes. And yes. we were hysterical for like two years trying to figure out how to get this kid to sleep more than, you know, literally 20 minutes and take more than two ounces of a, of a breast breast milk. And mm -hmm. I knew in my gut, based on what I know, like, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to cry it out. I don't, you know, I don't personally prescribe to that. I'm not saying there's not a time to do it or there's not a way to do it. That's healthy. And I know we could talk about that forever. Um, just like I'm not saying if your kid is literally going to kill themselves or hurt somebody else that, that giving them a pop on the butt or doing some kind of corporal punishment is might be necessary if it's life or death or going to save their life. I, I'm not against that. What, mm -hmm. I'm, what I'm against is people forcing you to do something in a non-developmental way mm -hmm. just because mm -hmm. that's the way it's always been done. Does that yeah. make sense? Absolutely. So it's like potty, yeah. potty training. I mean, we did the thing with my oldest where we did Skittles and we did rewards and the school was like, he has to be potty trained to be able to wipe by two and a half or he can't come to daycare. And I'm like, there's no way in all of hell that he's going to do this thing. <laughs> and I did three weekends of like no pants on pee and poop on the floor None of it worked mm -hmm. about three weeks later. He just decided to do it and started potty training. And then we were mm -hmm. good. <laughs> My second boy, literally, I never once showed him the toilet. He peed and pooped just doing what his brother was doing. And we didn't have to potty train him at all. So it's like, it's insane yep. to try to force a parent to make the, to get in all this power struggle and make yeah. their child do it because the school or whoever is telling you, you must do it by this literal deadline. Absolutely. Anyway, sorry. Yes. I get on a tangent. No, to everything that you're saying. And I think that is exactly it. I mean, I think, you know, you hope to get the first time parents, you know, on this, because usually by the second one, hopefully they've, um, they've kind of learned, like, let's just, 
let's just let this happen. Also, we don't have, you know, you know, like, but it is. And I think, and even with sleep, getting them to sleep on their own, that's a whole one too to add to that list. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think I kind of always like give the example of the last time we really just allow kids in our mind, in our like subconscious brain, right? In this society to kind of do something on their own without us feeling the need to hover, put a deadline on it, to worry about it, to do all this stuff to make it happen is when a child's learning to walk. Mm -hmm. Because they're still a baby, usually. I mean, you know, there, there are some that walk past 12 months, but they're still very little babies, basically. And we don't put a timeline on that we don't say you better walk by 12 months (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna spend the next two weekends getting little joey how to learn how to walk right we we don't we don't do that because we understand that the child is gonna eventually walk when they're ready for the most part i'm sure that that's probably in some spaces and circles an ordeal too and there is there's a worry with all these developmental milestones that we have to like you said these haven't been around for that long. They can be a good thing and they can also be a fear thing for yeah. parents. They can be, oh my gosh, they've got to do this by the book. We're just waiting to pathologize. pathologize. Oh my gosh, yes. the right word? You know, we're waiting. Parents are just waiting for that. I was waiting for that. I was waiting for my son. Something's going to be wrong. There's just <laughs> no way I'm going to get out of this without something being wrong, right? And yeah. my big thing was autism. And I don't know if it's because I had worked with a lot of children that had autism, but for me as a parent, I was like, I'm going to do everything in my power, which sounds so silly and awful now because what's the worst thing? But anyway, um, but yeah, so we have to look at all of those things that we just talked about on that list. That's just another developmental milestones. And I'm very passionate about child-led development. I understand that child-led development and being able to allow for that means that there's going to be a certain amount of privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, just like you're talking about, there are schools that these kids, you know, they're, they're going to be putting deadlines on stuff. I think that's a red flag, and I wish I could take down that for every school. I don't think it's right, that that that, but for whatever reason, they have to do it. And, um, but... And, and, you know, you've got p- parents that work and, are, you know, the kids got to be able to do some stuff because we've got to get going and we've mm. got to live our lives. And we don't have time to take our kid out in nature and let them spend hours out there and doing like, we've got to do this and that. And so there's a certain level of privilege to that. But I do think um, there's ways that you can scaffold it down and you can you can have the mindset of letting a child develop at their own pace, no matter where you're at. And it's going to take so much pressure off of you as a parent you know if you can just trust it's about trusting and it's about living consciously and which is not easy to do in this society you know the big myths around potty training are a child should be potty trained by the time they're three and that you can do it in a couple weeks those are myths most children aren't actually ready until age three Mm-hmm. And if you let them do it and give them all the environment, you have to set up an environment that's conducive to them wanting to do it. You know, I always suggest books, um, stools, toy potties, things like that. But, you know, like my son was three 
And by three and a half, he was pretty well independent. It took about six months over the time period from three to three and a half. And, and we know um, with a lot of pelvic health OTs that I talked to, um, six months is really about how long it takes for them to become independent. I'm talking about without the parent having to put so much you want to be able to, we already have so much going on. We don't want to have to micromanage this, yeah. right? Let them do it on their own. It takes pressure off of us. And it also gives them this beautiful budding independent. That's one of the first times, aside from learning how to walk, it's one of the first milestones that they really are doing separate from us mm. or they should and they're intrinsically motivated to do it. That's another thing is we think that they have to have, you mentioned the Skittles, that's what a lot of parents do. Um, you can guess that I don't I don't suggest ex- extrinsic um, rewards yeah. because it's an intrinsic thing. Like you talked about your second one. All he had to do is watch big, you know, the your big, big brother do it and y'all do it, you know, and usually most children, um, are going to do it because they're intrinsically motivated to do it. It's just something that we just do. You know, they see everybody else do it. Um, They're going to do it. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, I mean, beautifully said, I think you, you, us recognizing that there is privilege to that, right? We're in America, Mm -hmm. we're in Western, you know, Western society. So the fact that we Mm -hmm. even have time and the ability to do all of this is still more amazing than, you know, 80% of the world. But I think Mm -hmm. the thing about American culture, especially is that, we're so busy. We're trying to both work for status and career so that we can have things. We can provide comfort. We can buy retirement. We can, you know, provide college, you know, tuition. We're doing all these things for the benefit, like for really truly our hearts as parents is for the benefit of our children and their children, mostly because we didn't get it or because we did get it and we want to pass it down. But the way we're doing it is, we're ignoring the zero to almost, I'd say eight to 10 year old kid. And then they start, all of that other stuff starts mattering, like when they're in puberty and when they can function and have a conversation and when they start, not that parents don't love their children or they don't matter Mm -hmm. to them. It's just that it's impossible to, to have space to let your child grow and learn when everything is geared towards adult functioning. And, mm-hmm. and this kind of industrial, like just, yes. you know, thing. And so yeah. I think about that from a Christian perspective, because in my opinion, the American dream and the way we do all of those things I just said, status is all anti-gospel messaging. You know, it's all trying to meet your needs with an external thing because you're not, your needs aren't met internally. You know, you don't know that God loves you and that you're secure in who you are and that your job is to disciple your kids first and your and be in marriage and disciple your children. And then that kind of extrapolates out to your closer community. And then what you do with your job and what you do with your future starts to matter. That's the gospel in my opinion. And so we've replaced the American dream for, for the gospel in some ways and then who suffers the most, but women and children, yeah. you know, and I'm not, and Absolutely. men suffer too. And that's a whole nother mm-hmm. tangent mm-hmm. because, you know, earlier you said, and women, you know, are least supported. And it's like, I would just say both sexes are least supported when it comes to parenting, you know, like equally in different ways as a dad, I have no resources and no wow. men right to help me be a good father. We've lost that historical, mm passing down of manhood, showing you how to be a dad, showing you be how to be a husband. 
and then that being a communal effort between men. We don't have that either. And that doesn't matter if you're white or black or, or whatever, you know, Hispanic, there are some cultures who do it better, but definitely mm-hmm. in the American Western culture, I mean, it's just nowhere for nobody. And so that's I think, such a good point. Oh, that's so good. One of the things, <laughs> one of the things good. I talk about all the time with men and that, again, everything's on a spectrum but my wife and I were talking, this is probably six or seven months ago. And uh, I was joking and I was like, you know, if I have to read another mom blog about how hard it is to be a mom or stay at home mom or whatever, I'm going to jump out of a window. And it was cause I was really struggling with how hard it was to be a dad, how hard it was to support her through, you know, Ugh. breastfeeding and, and, you know, only being able to eat like eight ingredients and staying at home. And, and she's getting all the things we talked about that you talked about as a woman, all those pressures and all the societal norms, and you need to go back to work and you need to do this. And you only got three weeks, get it together, you know, all of the things. But what's not talked about is if you are an active dad who wants to be nurturing and wants to be loving and wants to be a good husband, how difficult it is to sit there and feel extremely helpless most of the time. Only your only two options would be, you know, give support when that support's not enough or go to work so you can make the money so you can provide for all that thing to happen. And so that's kind of the conversation we were having. And I was saying, you know, one of the things I think that and, and, and again, it's a spectrum women experience rejection, too. But I was saying as a as an active father participant, I would, you know, walk in the living room and to get coffee. And she's like, I'm tired. You know, the kids have been touching me. Don't touch me right now. And then I go to kiss my oldest son or my, my toddler. And he's like, I want mommy, not you. And I go to kiss my oldest son. And he's like, why is mom not here? You know, and it's like, dang, you know, like I should just go <laughs> hang myself in the backyard. Like I'm not needed. I'm not wanted. Like, like it's so that sense of rejection as a man when you're getting up to go to work and you're active and you're there and available, your kid skins their knee, you're there and you're like, Hey, I love you, buddy. Let me attune. Let me breathe with you. Let me attach. And they're like, I want mommy. You're like, dang. Like I don't think women on a spectrum experience that in the way that a man does. Um, and, and you know, whatever feminists hang me up. But I, I think that, that experience of, no matter how good of a father you are, your children want their mother when they're hurting. They want their mother to soothe them because that they got breastfed, they got held, they were in the womb. Like, and that there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But as a man and a parent, you cannot change that no matter how hard you work. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, and I don't think honestly, men talk about that enough. No, I'm, I'm seriously like, that's amazing that you were able to articulate all of that because I think it's so true. I think it's so common. And I think that my husband had your exact experience. Like he, all of the emotions that you just talked about, he went through and you're right. I shouldn't just say, I love hearing this perspective because usually when I'm talking about these things, I'm talking with other moms, other women. That's one of the things that drew me to your page and your work. It's because I was like, Yes, we need more men talking about these things. Um, and you're right. My husband is basically, you know, on his, he has, he's just like me, kind of streamlining his own path in parents and, um, you know, with not a lot of support, you know, and um, definitely not male figures, you know. Um, and, and we could get into even like with his work too, you know, oh. we're, we're running out of mentors at work and workplaces that are, are that are like, you know, that are able to truly mentor and pass down wisdom. Um, and it, I think that really affects males, um, 
more maybe maybe I, don't, I shouldn't be saying more and all that but um, well, I, I think there I, are some I, differences. I think that's where we have, you know, we have to be careful and we don't have to be careful. It depends on yeah. your stance on men and women. You know, it's like, yeah. are they equally the same and need all the equal things? I don't see that playing out in psychology or the world. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean that doesn't mean better, though. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's just a physical factor that my children want my mother. I, yeah, I yeah, want yeah, their yeah. mother. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is that all mm-hmm. children? No. You know, there's somebody, mm-hmm. there's one or two people that are going to be listening going, well, that's not my experience. My husband rejects me all the time. I'm sure that's true. What we're yeah. talking about is not, we can't make the, the, uh, the, exp- the exception, the rule, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The, the, the rule is this is how it generally goes. And if you're in the exception, we'll work around that and we'll talk about that and yeah. see why that happens. But you're talking about eight out of 10 people. That's their experience. And I hear it every day in my office, except yeah. for men are so terrified to talk about it because they're going to get shamed immediately by the culture. And so it's like, oh, men step up and be good fathers and be good parents and be attuned and be attached, but also be strong and work hard and don't complain and suck it up. You know, it's like, it's these double binds that women get in the same way where it's like, be a mom and be nurturing and breastfeed, but also have a career and go out and work and get back to work and don't hurt our bottom line. And you know, it's, it's like both people get it from both sides. And I think the biggest lie that the devil's ever told in our culture is this whole you got to be against each other men and women and we got to find out you know how we can you know pit each other's like i don't know like suffering olympics against each other instead of instead of asking good questions and saying hey healthy male can you tell me a little bit about what's tough for you hey healthy female can you tell me about what's tough for you and let's see how our our society is pitting those things against each other yeah Totally. And, you know, on that note, you know, you talk about, you know, it's, a, you know, I have a boy, I have one boy and I have become, you know, one of the things I've decided, you know, as a conscious parent is, you know, I am, I'm doing everything in my power to break these rigid, rigid gender roles and these constructs of like, this is what it looks like to do this and that. Mm-hmm. Um, because of that, um, I saw a quote, uh, it was on my Instagram feed today that said boys and men need feminism. And I think what that means is we need to be protecting the emotional life of boys mm-hmm. at all costs because boys and, and there's research out there to support this. I mean, I love the work of uh, Mona Delahook. Yep. I love the work of Maggie Dent. Um, I love the work of Janet Lansbury. All of them talk about this in detail. Um, boys are actually more emotional beings than girls. I mean, in terms of like in general, obviously not every single one. I mean, uh, but for the most part, boys, um, they are, and, and they need that sensitivity and that, uh, uh, safety when it comes to expressing their emotion more so than even girls at a young, young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it's really the work of, 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 of being a conscious parent, if that's something that you're interested in, is really doing everything in your power to uh, make them question and make them be curious and constantly be, be uh, exposing them to, you know, everything from what they're watching on TV to the books that they, that you read to them to just how you, how you talk in general, you know, can really help, help with that. Our society is 
steep in it. And so it's very much about keeping a lot of that out of the home um, and doing the best you can to like help them think critically about things. But, you know, my son is five and I'm picking up all kinds of books. We have so many amazing. This pandemic has just children's books are just incredible Mm -hmm. right now. The diversity that is out there, um, the things that they're depicting boys doing, crying in books, girls can be whatever they want to be. They can they can wear pants. They can be they can be doctors. They can be firefighters. Wait, I mean, seriously, it just gets to like there's this like, I mean, and some of that seems old school, but like at the end of the day, it's really not. It's yeah, we're still not that far weird. removed from it. We're not. And and now we've got social media and we've got things at the tip of our fingers all the time that are constantly telling our kids, you know, what to be and how to be. And um, it's just trying so hard to just kind of, yeah, it's just funny because even my son's five, like I said, he'll be six in October and we were reading a book. I I picked out um, Dress Like a Girl. Mm. And I usually don't, the book is about girls being able to dress however they want and be whatever they want. But I usually don't, I stray away from things that are like, like this, you know, but then when you read it, you realize, but he heard dress like a girl. And the first thing he said, I looked over his little face was like, he's starting to like have really big facial expressions. He was like, like a girl. He said, you can dress however you want. (laughs) And that was just the first page of the book. And I was like, you're right, but let's, let's read it and kind of see, um, you know, his, his, uh, Anyway, so, but that's just kind of a, a, a tangent on all of that. But I think it goes back to what you're talking about, that emotional, like, letting boys know um, you can be, you can have emotions. It's yeah. safe to have those. You well, know, we, mm-hmm. That was one of the hardest chapters I wrote in the book. Uh, one was on masturbation, and then the other was on gender. And <laughs> I, I just started it out saying both chapters, sure. like, these are the two most difficult chapters <laughs> because they're so nuanced and but they need to be addressed and talked about. And um, that's what I tried to focus on with the gender chapter was expressing, you know, I wasn't getting into LGBTQ or trans or any mm-hmm. of that stuff. And I said that mm-hmm. up front, like, I'm not, I'm not here to have that debate. What I'm here to yeah. talk about is the bigger issue, in my opinion, of us calling girls names, boys names, doing this really rigid stereotype that's leading yes. to way more problems and you know, such a root cause to issues than all the rest of this. We can we can get into that, but but if that's a tiny population. Let's get into the huge population of people who are like, you know, you have your hair cut this way, or you cried, or you skinned your knee, or you let that girl beat you in a race, you know, and and how that sets yeah. the genders up against each other from literal developmental wiring, you know, like you're, yeah. you're literally pairing neuropathways for how men, how boys and girls think about the opposite sex and you're making their worth and value be about their ge- literal gender or their, and that's the worst thing we can be doing as a society instead mm-hmm. of honoring the differences, not caring if they are different and then just valuing the person for them as an individual and who they are. Absolutely. And that's what we should be teaching our children. So that, that chapter was hard to write cause I know the pushback I'm going to get. And yeah. And, and I know like, even with you saying uh, dress like a girl, I know that listeners, their first instinct, including mine's like, is this going to be a book, a book about transgenderism? You know what I mean? Like people are just yeah, so on and, edge and no, about everything. Yeah. But it, it's hard to but, even talk about it. Yep. But that's why I love the podcast and these conversations. And this is, yeah. I, and I'd say this to everybody listening. I lo- obviously we're doing a podcast. 
But what we really need is to be having these conversations with trusted people in our community. You yeah. know, podcasts are great. And I hope that this leads people to have these conversations. But the more important thing is to go, who's my kid? You know, who are they and how do I love on them and how do I get to know them and how do I need to be as a parent for mm-hmm. my child who's maybe a little sensitive as a boy or maybe rough, rough and tumble or, you know, maybe yeah. is more, you know, wants to get dirty as a girl. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. those are such stereotyped things because of history. Now, yeah. stereotypes are true because they do fit the bell curve most of the time. But mm-hmm. I think that's where we get in trouble is is giving worth and value and assignment to things that you know, just generalized to all kids. And it's like, well, that that's just not true. And yeah. my boys are the same way. Like we come constantly telling them, dude, you can cry all you want to, you know, yeah. go ahead, cry. Crying's fine. Daddy cries. You've seen daddy cry. Like crying's fine. You oh, skint your cool. knee. Let's cry. You know, like, let's do it together. I'll cry with you, whatever. It's, I think where we've swung is parents being like, and you can have all the feelings you want and let them go as far as you want. And once you figure it out, and that's where I think the gentle parenting, although I love most of it, that's where I feel like it gets in trouble is like, there have mm-hmm. to be some boundaries and structure and you have to teach self-regulation and you have to, as the kid gets older, let them know like what's a no, no go and what's, you know, what respect is and, and what healthy authority is and all this kind of things. And then the gentle parenting crowd hears authority or discipline and thinks that means hit them, yell at them, dominate them. And it's like this, this constant mm-hmm. pendulum from the two sides. And I think what I love about your stuff and why I had you on is that I think we're trying to find the, the balance in the middle. Totally. Know, and go, okay. And that, yeah. Go ahead. I, everything you're saying, I could go off on like 15 minutes, but yes, 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 yes. And also on that note, it got me thinking when you were talking, so much of it too is just going with your instinct and your gut on stuff. Like be aware, know how you want to be as a parent, but also like, you know, everything, we see all these parenting styles and all these scripts and all these things. And it's wonderful that we have resources, but now we have too much, right? Mm -hmm. We have too much. And that's why I think working with a coach, working with a therapist, getting really serious about what your values are and, and reclaiming the voice you have as a parent is so important because you can read all these scripts all day long, but that's not real life. Like I think the other day, was it today maybe, or even yesterday, it was like my I overheard my husband tell my son, you are allowed to feel mad. What you're not allowed to do is exactly um, is hit that. He was trying, he was about to like, he was, he's starting to get really not aggressive and like just a developmentally, he's going through an aggressive stage. Yeah, aggressive, yeah. And, and I, I heard even overheard, that right there, pause. So even that right there, like, Defining terms and labeling things, I think, is what's so important because even we have to give so many caveats to what we mean. Like a five-year-old hitting something or slamming the door or throwing something at you is aggressive. But is aggressive necessarily super unhealthy and toxic and something that immediately needs to be crushed and done away with? You know what I mean? Like, no. If Mm -hmm. it's extremely violent, if he's getting knives Mm -hmm. out of the drawer and trying to stab Mm -hmm. you with them, that's a clinical problem we need to work on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If your five-year-old's just mad and trying to learn how to express their feelings, they have to be able to mess up to learn how to do it right. Yeah. The baseline should be mess up. And when they do it Mm -hmm. right one out of five times, we should be like, great. And hopefully over five years they're doing, you know. But I feel like we we treat kids like the baseline should be behavior being really good and listening. And then when they mess up one or two times, it's something to crush and punish and, and go, you can't do this. 
Mm-hmm. But reality is there it's the first time he's been five years old. Yeah. You know, like of course he's gonna lose his mind. And if he's a mm-hmm. if he's a confident, attached, attuned, safe feeling kid, sometimes they're gonna lose their mind even more because they feel like okay. they have the space to do it. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it and it's it's really helping understand parents understand what's typical developmental behavior. Um and and what's you know like you said like getting knives out and i mean you know typically it's like okay you know um we can teach some skills here where 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 are some skills and then obviously the modeling it it, we kind of forget that like it's up to us too so if we are getting mad and yelling and slamming things and um acting out in that way because we do and we will and again it's okay but that is kind of where they're learning so if you can think about every you know even if it's just one time where you're like you know i'm feeling like a little mad because this person that's you know i'm driving and this person is just really on my like they're driving way too close and i don't feel safe i'm gonna take a deep breath and i feel better you know and they're listening to those things and hopefully they're you know and one day they'll learn to do it themselves but it's a process and it's and they do like you said the baseline is they're gonna just mess up and then we have to constantly be giving compassion and going okay and then not trying to pathologize it you know not like realizing okay how am i responding and uh Cause I can be making it a lot worse too. Right. Yep. Like sometimes I hate that quote. That's like, they don't need, you know, when a child's melting down, you need to be their calm, not join in their chaos. And it's like, that's like the hardest thing to do, but it, you know, but if you can do it, if you can, you know, if you can, it is a little bit of a superpower, that co-regulation, that attunement that you're mm-hmm. talking about. Um, it really is powerful. Um, and we don't have to do it perfectly. We don't have to do it all the time. No. Um, but that is how they learn, you know? And, um, yeah. if we come at them very aggressive and we shame them for all those behaviors, then of course they're going to start there. It's going to start just escalating, um, cause they don't feel safe. And then that's where parents really start to get like, when the kids get older, like, Ooh, we don't have these like foundational skills that yeah. we need. Like you said, that zero to eight is so important for that, that it's unreal. And we do it's the little, so, we do the least of all of that ages in, in America. Yeah. Like we and, teach and the, I was, the least of emotional regulation in the years where they need it the most. Yeah. And, and, and what kept coming up for me, I know we're getting, we're getting close to time. But oh no, you're I, fine. We can go to one thirty. We got, we got plenty of okay. time. Okay. One of the things that came up for me when you were talking about this, um, you know, kids saying, oh, you know, the girl, the girl ran and, and or you got beat by a girl and you were kind of talking about all that. One, one of the things that I'm so passionate about is play based learning, unstructured play. Mm-hmm. And then if you couple that with time and nature, kids are naturally getting all of this because what nature doesn't do what you can't do everything is an equal playing field in nature (laughs) there's nothing that's going to come up in nature that's going to say well the boy has to do this and the girl has to do this and it's a beautiful thing watching kids and i facilitated a nature-based program for three to five year olds just a little half-day program last year and it was 
these kids are getting that emotional regulation. They're getting, they're learning. Filthy. Do what? (laughs) Filthy. They're getting really dirty. You know, it's amazing. Nine times out of 10, if they had a chance to get in the mud, they would get in the mud. Mm -hmm. Nine times out of 10. Uh, But then they'd learn, right? I got in the mud and then I had to get cleaned up later, you know, and they remembered that thing, right? So they're just building all those sensory awareness, those sensory skills, and then learning that they can, they do have all these opportunities that, that everybody else has. Boys and girls are together, they're doing the same things, and they can do as much or as little as they want in nature and in a play-based setting. Um, And I think if we had more play-based opportunities and unstructured learning opportunities for children in those age ranges, we would have some better outcomes. Mm -hmm. I truly believe that. Um, But what we're seeing is these academics, you know, kindergarten is now pre-K four, <laughs> first grade is now kindergarten. And then we've got competitive sports happening at five years old. And so, for those, and I, yeah, for those of y'all who didn't see me, I fell out of the computer screen for a second. I, I, we could have a separate episode on organized sports and, and competitive sports. Um, just step all over that. all the toes. <laughs> I know people are going to come at me. For, I was a college softball player, by the way. So I have a little bit of, <laughs> Yeah, I can talk a little bit because I lived it. I lived a toxic sports culture. It's not all toxic. Sports has wonderful things. But anyway, what I'm saying is at that, when we're talking, let's go back to zero to eight. They, um, they, you know, they need all the opportunities. They need all the things. They don't need to be playing baseball year round at that age. They need more, um, diversity, uh, you know, they need more unstructured activities, mm-hmm. um, in my opinion. Have you seen or followed uh, A Thousand Hours Outside, I think? Yeah. Have you seen her? She just, she has the book. Uh, I think she just published it called uh, uh, When the Street Lights Come On or something like that. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my wife's been all about that here recently. Yeah. She had Kim John Payne on. I don't yeah. know. He's like my, like. When I, you know, I always encourage parents to find like one really good person that they just resonate with. You read their book, his book, Simplicity Parenting, I recommend to anybody that um, it just every single line just resonates. And he wrote an entire book with a couple of other youth sports professionals on um, just sports, youth sports. What's that called? Do you know? Um, It's called uh, Parenting. I've got it in my bookcase. Uh, smart parenting in a toxic youth sports world or okay. something like that. It's yeah, by yeah. Kim John Payne. Um, and, and they actually interview Louise is the guy. I can't remember his last name uh, on that, that podcast on the uh, thousand hours uh, outside podcast. Gotcha. Um, so you can go on there and look and find it too. She and Jenny interviewed them and it was really, really good. That's awesome. But that book's really great for anybody that's, interested in in that (laughs) yeah it's good no i mean you're right though the that's the other thing we've we've completely taken out of our society is just that ability for kids to play and and i think that's Mm -hmm. what i want parents to ask themselves and and maybe for our generation and up you know it's the ship sailed but i'm hoping for the next generation of parents whether it's sexual abuse or you know technology or outside that they can really ask themselves, you know, what is it that I value about humanity? 
you know, and what is it that we did an episode on this a while back? Like what is success? Because I think the mm-hmm. biggest thing is like you said, I think parents are really wanting to do what is going to provide their children with the most success possible. But mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily sure that any, everybody stopped to think about like what that is and define that and what that actually means and how that's playing out in their own life, you know, because yeah. is success having two jobs and having two incomes and having more vacations and money or is success like our children being emotionally intelligent, knowing who they are, having a healthy boundaries, being able to mm-hmm. be um, confident in whatever it is that they're doing you know, um, have a good relationship with us for God's sakes, where they can come to us and feel safe to communicate and, and be angry mm-hmm. and be sad and ask questions. Um, like to me, that's success. You know, if, if my kids, my boys are 20 and we have a great relationship and they're, they choose to do, I don't care what they choose to do and they're happy and they're engaged with me and they're in relationships and they're loving the Lord. Like, I don't care. I'm going to call mm-hmm. that a success. Now that's easier said than done, right? I mean, I think that's where the the regulation and the insight in the community comes in because it's like I can say all of this stuff and we're all we're talking all these ideals and I screw it all up and I get afraid yeah. and I react out of oh, fear yeah. and I'm like I you know, I'm going to maybe I need to tear your butt up so you don't smoke crack when you're 17. You know, like it's <laughs> like you go through yeah. all those things, but it's like it's that's where the regulation and getting to the truth and having like all the resources at your disposal allows you to the for the majority of the time to do the right thing and to hold the line to what you know is true and what you feel is what your kids need because every time that I've compromised that out of fear or out of what somebody else would think I I regret it to my bones you know Ooh, and and yeah. it's just the worst you know when I just, yeah and it's a feeling right yeah. like that's why I'm so like Let's get back to letting helping parents listen to that feeling, right? Like, it's not fair that we're putting all these pressures and these ideals and these, um, like you said, not not getting clear at what that individual family family's version of success is, and or knowing what their values are. Yeah. Um, and we've put all this and then we, th- when we do that, we're not listening to ourselves and we're going to end up feeling yucky. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like you went, you said earlier that you, with your first, that y'all, um, y'all had tried or you, sleep training didn't feel right. That's one of the first times parents start realizing that society has put so much, it, like it's the first time, one of the first times I think that parents start realizing, oh, this isn't how, this is what everybody says I should be doing. And this isn't what I'm feeling is right. For me as a parent, that was my first time with the sleep training. It was like, oh, they're not, it's immediately something's wrong. Immediately we have to do something to fix it. Um, Immediately we have to pay someone to, (laughs) I mean, do something. When it's like, what is actually going back to consciousness? Who is this child you have in front of you? What is actually happening? Mm -hmm. Nine times out of 10, it's typical infant sleep. And it sucks. Dr. Sears talks about nighttime parenting. It sucks. (laughs) But that's why parents need support. It's also, yeah. Yes. It's also the shortest period of your kid's life. Yeah. But it it feels like it's not. No, it feels like like forever. Yeah. I mean, and it's like, 
me and my husband brought home our son and we, okay, like, let's go to bed, you know? Yeah, we'll wake him up in three hours and breastfeed him. And it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> and there goes three years of, you know, and so it's like, what's realistic? What's, you know, what's normal? Um, what feels good? If it doesn't feel good, usually parents will tell you that crying out or doing anything that, not just crying out, that's just one example, doing anything like you said, of that just doesn't, you just get that niggling of like something, I know, I know, I probably, this doesn't, what I should be doing. This is, doesn't feel right. This yeah. isn't what's best. I think that, so and I hear you on that. I think I'm going to just thread the needle. I think that trusting your gut in those areas, there's an attachment and an attunement and a biological response to pain in your baby and suffering in your child that you should definitely trust your gut on because and, and check in with yourself and go, why am I doing this and what's best? I think where I hesitate on the trust your gut thing is that we, we have so much trauma that a mm-hmm. lot of people's initial instinct, their gut instinct is actually to hit or to yell or and that yeah. actually feels like the right thing. And it's, yeah. it's, I know what you're saying is trust your gut when you're being a mindful, conscious parent. Like when you start building the skill and the awareness of being mindful and conscious, then you can start trusting your gut and that instinct a little more because you've built that in. But where I hesitate with people is like, you got to get there because if you, and and that's a big psychological thing on Instagram. It's like, just trust your feelings, trust your guts. You'll know if your partner's this or your child's this. And I'm like, Oh, like that's going real bad. If you haven't done any work and you have no accountability and no person who is helping you see who you are. You know, if you're just wow. trusting your only gut and it's just you, uh, to me, that goes bad real quick. Yeah. And then I think it's... Does that make sense? What It does make sense. And, and you I, can push I back. Really, I, I can go both ways on yeah. that. I mean, I think, too, it's like you said, like the result. What is the result? If this isn't getting you the result that that's best, you're going to feel it at some point. Like even yeah. if your gut is you know, a trauma reaction, which my gut trauma reactions were to yell, Mm -hmm. to yell. Um, I've started detecting bodily sensations (laughs) and I'm starting to connect them to emotions. But I was cut off from all that. So I I totally understand where you're coming from. But I also knew that yelling didn't feel right. Like my gut, my gut reaction was to yell, but I always felt really crappy afterwards, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's, it's, it's not just in the moment, but it's also, if this isn't working and this is something that's happening over and over again, you're getting reacted over and over again. That's a pain point that, that can be addressed that can, you can help yourself and get support with. I think anything that we do that comes from a trauma response is going to feel yucky eventually. I, I Um, I agree. You know, I think, and that's what finally, there's got to be something that sits us over the top to, I don't to know. get that. Keep going. I think there's got to be an event. And I, I would be interested to see what you say about this, seeing so many people in your, in your practice. I feel like there's got to be an event that happens to make yourself become more aware. For me, it was the depression. I was acting awful. I was depressed. I was crazy crying all the time i felt rage i was yelling i I mean and that was like this is not who i am this isn't the parent i want to be something is not right i've got to get help Mm -hmm. right and so that's what prompted me to do that i think we have a lot of people that just kind of you know a lot of unhealed humans walking around um 
and they're not, like you said, aware of yep. that this is actually a trauma response or that this is you're reacting over something that, you know, and then it starts getting, it can get really, <laughs> but so much of mine was tied to childhood stuff. Yeah. Um, so I realized that. Yeah, I think uh, well, so many things to say. We can have like a, I'm going to have you back on in like a couple months and have just a bunch of <laughs> other conversations. Um, I think for me, that's why uh, for my Christian listeners, that's why discipleship is so important. And disciple me, mm-hmm. discipleship. So I, you said you got to pick your person. So I love Dan Siegel and Tina Bryson. Um, yeah, all of their stuff's great. And Tina's going to come. Doctor Bryson's going to come on in October. So I'm super excited about that. So no yeah. way. So excited for that episode. If you're, you follow me, you've heard me talk about those books forever. So, you know, she'll be on, we're going to talk about some awesome stuff, but the point is, so, and I don't know what their faith background is either. Uh, I know there's a lot of people that I went to Fuller with that have worked under them and worked with them and all that. But my point is, is that, um, discipleship and well, discipline means to teach, Mm. right? The root word is disciple, which means to teach. So when we parent, we have to think about what can our, okay, if, if my goal and discipline and discipline and punishment are two totally different things, if, yeah. but if, if my goal is scripture says to discipline our children, right? That means that I'm to teach them. I'm to lead them. I'm to guide them. Um, then that means we have to ask, what is it that they're capable of learning in this developmental stage that they're in? Right. Mm. And so that means we have mm. to understand the developmental stage of our child to able to be able to be a good discipler of our children. So it's not enough to have a two year old who my favorite example uh, is the, is the kid in the high chair dropping their food on the floor. Like we've all experienced it, right? Every, every single parent, 90, let's say 98% of parents, because there's always outliers. 90, I don't don't like ultimatums. 98% of parents have experienced the toddler taking the spaghetti and dropping it on the floor, taking the food and throwing it on the floor, taking the spoon and dropping it. And you're just like, oh my God, if I have to pick up another thing, I'm going to, you know, some parents slap their kid's hand and tell them no. Yeah. And their idea is this is not helpful. This is not a good behavior. So I will... Mm -hmm discipline you, right? I will, mm-hmm. te- I will teach you that dropping your food on the floor is unhelpful and not what you should do. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. of the neuroscience in the world would tell you that that two-year-old or well, actually it's way younger, but 12 to 16 month old has no concept of learning right from wrong and yeah. knowing why they shouldn't drop the food on the floor. It is yeah. a developmental stage that all children go through. Because they're mm-hmm. learning object permanence. They're trying to figure yeah. out what this food does. They're trying to control yeah. texture. They're trying to figure, you know, they're, they're doing all these things. They're not thinking, I'm going to drop this food on the floor just to tick mom off or make it inconvenient. Right. And so what happens is, is that parents slap their hand and they lecture them and they tell them not to. And then after a few months, the child stops doing it and the parent goes, oh, look, they learned. Yeah. What they don't know is that the, the other parent who understands the developmental stage goes, this is just inconvenient. I'm going to keep redirecting. And in about the same timeline, the kid stops doing it. Yeah. Right. So in both scenarios, it was a two to three month developmental stage that every child goes through that Mm -hmm. one parent punishes and slaps and hurts the kid because they don't want him to do it. And they want him to learn not to do it. The other parent doesn't do anything, but kind of guide them and be inconvenienced. And lo and behold, the child, both children don't do it anymore. 
And I mm-hmm. think so many things in our culture are like that, where people mm-hmm. are like, oh, this punishment worked. It taught them and they stopped. And somebody needs to go, hey, I, I don't know if you know this, but they're going to do that. And then they're going to stop doing it regardless of what you do, pretty much. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. That, that's what I try to teach people is like, I yeah. get that you want to have something to do. I get that you feel all this shame and all this anxiety and all this, like me as a parent's responsible for all these behaviors and outcomes. And so I got to do something. But so much of, especially little kids from zero to five is the doing that you need to do is just walk beside them, nurture them, love on them, make them feel safe and mm-hmm. redirect and guide them on what's not healthy. But they're not going to be able to learn that lesson in the way that you think about learning. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of just when coaching parents in that age range that have children in that age range is that is exactly that is what's developmentally happening in the brain. What what uh, stages are they going through? That's why it doesn't make sense to potty train a two and a half year old, because what does a two and a half year old start doing? What does a two two and a half year old start going? No, 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 no. No, that's the first time they start saying no, right? So then that's when parents are, are pressured to potty train their kid. And, and pressured to no teach their child not to say no. Yeah. <laughs> after, yeah you've said, well, there you go. after you've said no for like a year to everything too. That's the, It's like, you know what I mean? Instead of saying not for Grady or not for Jude or, hey, we're going to redirect. People are like, no, yeah. no. And then the kids start yeah. saying it. You're like, why are you talking back? And it's like, oh my yeah. gosh, you literally taught your kid to do this for a year before they can't can say it and now they're saying it and you're upset and seeing it as a behavioral issue. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that, again, it goes back to the word conscious in my mind, conscious parenting is looking at the child right there without the need to put all this expectation behind it. Because what, what causes so much parental anguish and distress is that expectations are not met. Mm Mm-hmm. That is the biggest reason. And that goes into, as a therapist, you know, start spiraling into shame, into mm-hmm. feelings of not good enough, into feelings of comparison. Everybody's doing things better than me. My child's not here. It just, it, it's, it's the catalyst for so many problems yep. in mental health of parents. And so when you look at conscious parenting, the conscious parent by Shafali Tansberry is my, was the first, one of the first books I read besides simplicity parenting, those are my two where I just was like ever, and she's very spiritual. She's not um, faith-based, but she's, uh, everything's very spiritual. And it just all just really, every sentence just, ah, uh, resonated with me. And um, you're, you're really, it, it, it brings the joy back into parenting. That's so much of what I try to do um, uh, with families is go, let's, let's bring joy back let's let's figure out and so much of that is we gotta just this is the kids you got and this is where they're at and a lot of times it's not going to be where you think they're supposed to be at (laughs) you tell me when it is that'd be a great uh thing to do i mean it's so hard i'm not saying it's easy it is so hard and it it is I, i i mean even just the way they play with things Right. I've got a boy who I have constantly always set up all these wonderful art activities and things. And I've always had just all the all things available to him. Nine times out of ten, he's throwing things. He's, you know, it's, it's all 
I mean, he I can to break him, everything, right? Yeah, he's just a, I mean, and it's like, okay, you know, I'm just like, this is where, he, this is obviously what he's needing. So I've set up all this stuff and he's not playing it. And that's okay because it's all, you know, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> it's hard. It's so hard. My, my oldest didn't color until he was like five. And, yeah. and my second one, he just loves the color. He colors in lines. Like he just, yeah. he'll, he'll cut stuff out. I remember yeah. being, like, like we were like one of the only boys and there were like five or six uh, girls in our little group. And man, they would have all these parties and all these like play dates where they would like do stuff for Christmas or Thanksgiving or holidays. And they're mm-hmm. cutting stuff out and dipping chocolate in strawberries and chocolate and making these little things. And my oldest was just like a wrecking ball. You know, it was like mm-hmm. every time mm-hmm. they started inviting us, like, well, if you want us to just come over and tear everything up in your house while your kids or your daughters are sitting at a table doing art for an hour and a half, we'll do it. But like, that's what's going to happen is I'm going to be outside <laughs> with him. Y'all are going to be talking as moms and hanging out and, and dads and parents and me and Grady and then with the one other boy will be outside, like hitting a stick against a tree, you know? And, and again, that's not for everybody. <laughs> that's not how all boys and girls are, but, but it's a yeah. lot of them. It really is. There is developmentally from what I've seen as, as a therapist and just, uh, you know, that facilitating programs there is, I mean, boys a lot of times are, and like I said, not all time, but yes. And it's, it's like, okay, you know, this is, this is where we're at. You know, and this is what we're doing, and it's not going to last forever. Nope. Um, but I've got to meet them where they're at, um, because if I keep doing this pushback in my head of how things are supposed to be, I'm going to constantly be disappointed, mm-hmm. and not just him, but myself. And he's going to internalize that as disappointment. I think boys struggle with that. I think I think that happens with boys a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's not that parents are like actively trying to disappoint their boys. That's not what it is at all. There are so many loving, I mean, but boys, they struggle with executive functioning, even in older age. I was, I was at the grocery store the other day and there was a mom with her two boys and he was probably like nine or 10. And the mom was, they, she had her list out and she's like, okay, do you not see the cheese right there? That's on the list. The American cheese. You've picked that out like a hundred times. Like, gosh. You know, and I just kind of looked at her and I was like, I'm in solidarity with you. Like I under, you know, I, I get it, you know, but like there is, it's like we, we place it, like we think they're supposed to be able to do this. And a lot of times boys just, um, they're not there yet, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and goes with girls too. There's all kinds of things with girls too, that we could talk about with Definitely. that, but we're both boy yeah. parents. So we we're, we're in camaraderie about that for sure. Yeah. And, and all and the boy moms like, on here listening, you know what we're talking about and all the girl yeah. moms, we love you too, but we don't have girls. So we can't talk about it as nuanced today. No. We'll, we'll do that. Yeah. We have other episodes on being a girl parent with girl moms. So you can listen to that. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's interesting just the dynamic and all of that. And I, I'm, I'm really appreciative for you to come on and talk about it. And, uh, We'll uh we'll schedule. I know we we're going to talk about corporal punishment yeah. in Arkansas, uh, and yeah. we will do hey. that. So we're going to reschedule. And and I mean, I feel like this conversation was great, and I'd yeah. like to take a whole conversation. So just to kind of give a teaser, I'll, I'll I'll tell the date on the next podcast, but we'll have you rescheduled. So give a teaser about kind of what you do in Arkansas about corporal punishment in schools, and then oh. we'll, we'll kind of talk about that on on the next time you come. Yeah, yeah. So um. I am on uh, the board of Arkansans Against School Paddling. Um, we still have uh, corporal punishment is uh, physical punishment that is still allowed in many schools. Um, 
uh, lots of times they use a large uh, wooden paddle to do it. There's no um, like trainings on giving these uh, paddlings or anything like that. It's just kind of whoever <laughs> they, they usually designate a person to do it. 19 states. Um, you're in Louisiana, right? Mm-hmm. In Louisiana as well. Um, it's still, uh, still legal in some school districts, not all. Like it just depends on the school district that you're in. Um, and so we are working with, uh, we work with legislation. We work with parents. We uh, educate parents. We um, put out uh, videos at the U.S. to end uh the hitting of children is a really great resource. Um, and, uh, we work with them, uh, and, uh, working with legislation to basically in corporal punishment in schools and give schools alternative actions, um, to discipline, mm-hmm. uh, children in schools. Uh, so more, uh, you know, those, those alternative methods that are more, uh, you know, align with the latest neuroscience yeah. and that I'll, makes I'll say it, non-abusive, <laughs> non-abusive. And yeah, because, yeah. yeah. And we'll so, get into that the next time you come, but yeah. I think it's a great conversation, uh, to have and to be had. I, I this was probably, I was working for the Methodist children's home at the time. So it was like probably eight or nine years ago when I think Caddo was trying to do away with corporal punishment here, our parish and they, several new sources reached out to me and we, I think I did a write up on, the pros and cons and all that stuff. And so we can talk about that later, but yeah, it's amazing. It's just, it's amazing to me that with all that we know and all that's going on and with the, uh, the historical trauma and the changes in culture that children have, that we would be okay with literal strangers who we're not in community with hitting our children for a behavior that we don't have any authority over saying whether it was or wasn't right, wasn't enough, was for a reason. Like there's so many things that go into deciding to do that that the fact that it's just on the table is is so crazy right and we talk we'll get into the risk of sexual abuse and kind of the correlation between that and bodily autonomy and then i will this little nugget i will leave with is that it disproportionately affects um children of color and disabled children absolutely Um, so, so statistically speaking they're the ones that are getting um hit the most yeah what's the stat on that do you know? I don't have exact stats, but I can come next time with some like specific stats. Yeah, yeah. Just I'll so look some up too. It out. Yeah. Um, yeah there be- are there are stats, and that's the thing too is we're not sure how well this is just what's been recorded. Of course. Um, the director of our program of our um, organization when he came on, he was a big researcher at the U of A, and he learned that there wasn't even anybody keeping up with it. No, of course and not. And so that was a huge red uh, flag. And so, yeah, I'll tell my yeah. paddling, I'll tell my junior high paddling story whenever we, and my, and my kindergarten paddling story. I got both of those. No. Oh, yeah. I did some EMDR around that this morning. Not that specific thing, but they all, you know, all of that stuff links in together. Um, and man, it's just, no. yeah, oh, yeah. I was five. Yeah. No. But I'll tell yeah, that story. I mean, it, it's yep. cra- uh, and I'll tell you my husband's because it's, strange and his viewpoint on it is also strange so <laughs> it'll be interesting but yeah we'll, we'll definitely have to talk about because he he was a teenager and it was like opting for that versus d-hole or something oh and yeah I'm that's like, what i did i opted for the paddling yeah it was it was uh it was two weekends uh 
suspension or uh, or taking the paddling. Yep. That's how it is. I was like, yeah. go, go on and get, get that stick out because I ain't going. To, <laughs> I'm not going to detention for two weekends. I'm too social. But that wasn't right. I was a kid, and that should have never been my choice. But we'll get into that anyway. Um, so thank you for coming on. This has been phenomenal. Um, Yay! I could talk to you, you for like ten hours about all of this. Um, I know. So I'll get Sunny with you, and we'll reschedule. But thank y'all for listening. Um, thank you for uh, you know just always being followers of mine. Check out uh, Chelsea Harrington on Instagram. What's your website? Um, well, it's I'm through Impact uh, Life Coaching. Okay. Um, I can send that if you have show notes or anything. Yeah, yeah. But. Um, I'm under there. I'm under uh, her there. Um, but you can also find it on Chelsea Harrington coaching on my Instagram handle. Yep. You can then, find it through my link. Yeah. And I'll mm-hmm. tag you. It'll, it'll go live Friday. So we have a pretty quick turnaround. Okay. Um, so I'll tag you to all that and then we'll, we'll get you, we'll get Sunny to get you a date, but thanks guys for listening. God bless and have a good week.